Welcome, welcome to Parkview. We're glad to have you here. I just got back from Africa. Don't be jealous. I know some people come back with wooden carved elephants. I got these pants because I made fun of somebody wearing them, and then my team had them made for me, and now I have to wear it. I kind of lost a bet, okay? That's kind of basically what it is. It's my own fault, all right? Took this small team of people to Malawi. Here's a picture of our team, and uh, your your question is going to be, where is Malawi? Because that's where my question was. Here's a map of Africa can kind of show you where the country of Malawi is. It's about 17 million people in that thin strip right there next to Lake Malawi. Uh, And and why? Why would we be in Malawi? Well, what's in Malawi? Maybe you've heard about Malawi? Maybe not. About 14 years ago, Pastor Rick Warren from Saddleback Church uh, in in California wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. How many read Purpose Driven Life? All of our campuses, okay? I mean, best-selling nonfiction book in history, 40 million copies like like that, 180 languages it was translated into, okay? People, I mean, it just gave Rick all these crazy connections with people all over the world. Important people were reading it. I mean, you may may or may not have heard this, but Michael Phelps just credited reading that book right, you know, in this past year to turn his life around and get him back on track before the Olympics. I mean, just stories like that over and over again. Well, one of those people... Uh, that read that book 10 years ago was Paul Kagame. Paul Kagame is the president, still is the president of Rwanda. He read the book. He wrote Rick Warren a letter and said, hey, could we become the first purpose-driven nation? And you got to understand when I say Rwanda that Rwanda is that Rwanda when you think about it, that Hotel Rwanda. It's that place where 22 years ago there was a horrible genocide there because the media frenzied up one tribe against another. And in a period of 100 days, there was a country of 10 million people that killed 10% of its own people. They just turned on, neighbors turned on neighbors. There, there was mass rapes. HIV was horrible. People were deformed, and, you know, maimed for life. I mean, it, it's, just, it's just crazy that while the rest of the world wasn't paying any attention, this was happening. And it was really crazy because 90% of those people claim to be Christians. I know when you think, you, when you hear that, you're thinking like some, you know, Indian tribes in the jungle that are cannibals, right? No, no, these were Episcopalians and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Baptists and Catholics. These are people that, that claim to be Christians, but that did, just didn't really affect their life, obviously, very much, like it happens in, in, a lot of, in, in a lot of places. So 10 years ago, Saddleback started working in Rwanda. This, this is just uh, 12 years after the genocide basically decimated Rwanda. And at that point, it was in the lowest of all categories in the world, you know, especially HIV, AIDS, poverty, everything else. Fast forward to 2013. By this time, uh, they had been there eight years in Rwanda. Saddleback had been helping there. And Pastor Rick asked a small group of pastors to come and join him in Rwanda to see what had happened in the eight years that they'd been there and how the peace plan had been developed and what the peace plan was doing. And the peace plan, when you hear us talking about it around here, is plant churches that promote reconciliation, equip servant leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation. All the things that, you know, it's, it's up on the politic block right now, all the things that all the people know that we need to be doing to help people get better, that's what the peace plan is about. 
And while I was there, if you were around, you know I came back and I was blown away because we've done work in Kenya for 10 years. I've been to a lot of other developing nations along the way. I was expecting to see the same thing. But when my wife and Bill and I went, we saw curb and guttered streets. We saw no trash anywhere. We saw these, these houses. They were still mud huts in a lot of cases, but, but they, were, they had electricity and they had livestock and the tribal clashes were healed. And here's where Rwanda is today. I got some stats just this week. Rwanda is the first country in Africa that has hit all of its United Nations health goals. First, number one, life expectancy in Rwanda has doubled since 1990. That was before the genocide. So take that all out. That, that doesn't even factor in. Life expectancy has doubled. They have had the steepest decline in child mortality ever recorded anywhere, anytime. Children aren't dying anymore. The literacy rates have doubled for children in the past 11 years. Kids in school went from 72% of the kids were in school to 97% of the kids are in school. A million people, which is, again, about a tenth of the population, has been brought up past the poverty line up to a place where they can live self-sufficiently. There were 3,000 orphans in 2006. There are 1,200 left in the country, and they believe they will be the first country ever in the world to be orphan-free. Here is a graph of the GDP of Rwanda over the last 10 years. I don't have to tell you anything else because you know when you see that, you know that a country that has been decimated and lives in poverty and has HIV AIDS and all those problems, you know that if that's their gross, if that's their GDP going up over and over again every year getting better, you know that things are going well. And I have to tell you, only God could do that. So I go, we go over there and we watch and we see what's going on. And we're blown away. I came back and I told you, we, 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 we finally figured out how to help the world. So six months, eight months later, I was in California with Pastor Rick having lunch. And he said, hey, the president of Malawi called me and wants us to bring the peace plan to Malawi. I just got to tell you, no president of anything has ever called me at any time. I just, you know. <laughs> No governors have ever called me. I got a couple of mayor friends that I know, but, you know, I mean, that's about it. That's just where Rick's at, you know. And he said, the president of Malawi called and wants to bring PD to, to Malawi and the peace plan to Malawi. And I told her no, because that's not how the gospel works. If it all comes through one church, it's going to stop. It'll be a bottleneck. It's not going to work. So he said, I told her, it was, it was Joyce Banda, President Joyce Banda at the time, I told her, Look, we're not going to do it, but I will send you another church, and we will send the people of Rwanda, and then I can send another church and somebody, people from Rwanda to Zambia and Zimbabwe and the other countries, and that way we can make this thing go faster. And he turned to me and he said, so Tim, why don't you take Malawi? And I said, okay, even though I didn't know where Malawi was either. And, and we, we joked that Pastor Bill thought Rick said Maui, and he was really excited for a little while. <laughs> That, that, was, that wasn't it. What did we get? Well, thank you, Pastor Rick. We got Malawi. It's the third poorest country in Africa. They call it the heart of Africa because the people are amazingly sweet and beautiful, and the tribal clashes are really not there. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the country doesn't have running water. The country, most of the country doesn't have electricity. This is the country, if you will remember, that Madonna went over and adopted children from, and then she was going to, you know, build a school and do all this stuff, which she never did, by the way, but that's beside the point. This is that country, okay? And, and unfortunately, that president <clears throat> that called for us to come over is no longer the 
president, but it doesn't matter. We're not going to deal with the government yet. We're dealing with the churches because this is about the churches. And by the way, if you're interested in reading about Malawi, there's a New York Times bestselling book called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Anybody read that? Really, really good book written by a guy who, uh, a young man who's still alive. This is recent history, who, who figured out how to make windmills in his village by going to the library and just reading about it. He was just a, kind of the, the Thomas Edison of Malawi, and it's recent because that's how poor and, and decimated everything is. Okay? So, so what does this mean for us as a church? Well, what this means for us as a church <clears throat> is that we're going to train our people. Purpose-driven principles are the part of the things that changed our church back in the, in the early 2000s. It's a big part of the transition in our church into, into being healthy and into growing, and, and, <clears throat> and you're the recipients of that. So we trained our people again in PD principles, and now our next step is to go over and get church leaders to work together because this is all going to go through the church. This is where I love this plan. I love world relief organizations, all those, all those NGOs and all those things that are trying to help the people of the world. But they only exist because the church isn't doing its job. There are two plus billion people that call themselves Christians in the world. We already have plenty of workers and plenty of buildings and we have the power of God. So we want to work through the church. So we found a Malawian man and his wife who are the perfect couple to be the, the peace people of peace, the man and woman of peace in, in the country, Sam and Mala. Uh, Sam is a theologically trained pastor who is perfect for the job. He and his amazing wife, Mala, have a great, they've got great church and government connections through their families. They're, they're, they're very important people over there. Um, they had a project in one of the pro- poor provinces to help people figure out how to farm and do these things uh, and, and, and help the kids and, and, and live better. And so the people of the province were like, hey, why don't you run for parliament? So he's like, okay, I guess I could do that. So he did. And he, so he's, he's basically, he's basically a, a senator, a state senator in uh, Malawi, and he is adjunct staff of Parkview. We, we help them so that they can facilitate all the things that are going on over there. So a year ago, Sam and Mala got all the influential people from every denomination together they possibly could, and we got a gathering together in the long way Malawi. Again, if you were here, you heard me talk about it. Supernatural moment for me as all these different denominations are coming together. And uh, so, so what we do is we're going to train pastors in purpose-driven principles and just the basic discipleship principles. And you've got to understand, most of these pastors don't have a high school education. They're pastors by default. Most of them that are out in the remote areas, they, they know how to do a church service, okay? They know how to pray for people, but that's about all they know how to do. So the people aren't being mobilized, which was the problem in Rwanda. You have people claiming, you know, to follow Jesus, but they weren't being mobilized. They didn't really know what that meant. So remarkably, a year ago, we had the top denominational leaders and some of the most influential pastors of Malawi gather together. And among them, they picked nine men and women to serve as the steering team. And you've heard me talk about this moment where they came forward and knelt before us and, and we prayed over them. And it just felt like, it felt like the book of Acts. It felt like we, we were, the Holy Spirit was just ready to roll into Malawi. And, and we've got Presbyterians, Anglicans, Baptists, Methodist, Assembly of God, Pentecostal. Everybody is represented in this group except for the Catholics. And the Catholics are coming. I know they will. They did that in Rwanda. It took them a while. The, you, know, the higher, you know what the hierarchy is like in the Catholic Church. You know, it's got to come from the top down. So they will join us because these people work together in Africa way better than they work together over here. 
So for the past eight months, then, our missions pastor, Sean, and his wife, Tarn, and Sam and Mala, and some of the trainers from Malawi, and some of our other staff, Casey's been over there doing as well, and some of our other staff have been going over and training all the church leaders in these three different regions of the country. Okay? It's a narrow country, but think of it for us as Minneapolis, Chicago, and St. Louis. Those are the three big cities, okay? and everybody kind of flocks to those three cities. And we've been going to all three regions for eight months. Once a day, a pastor will come and receive training in how to grow a healthy church. And this past two weeks uh, has been graduation. That's why I went back. And these guys are eating it up, man. They're already implementing it, and and they're excited about it. And over the past two weeks, we graduated 287 pastors in in, in growing the church. Yeah. I know. It was unbelievable. And you got to understand, man, I mean, you're going to see a little bit of a video, but like the, 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 their wives were bringing them flowers, you know, and they were, they were dancing. I mean, that, some, of these, some of these people have never got a certificate of completion for anything ever in their life. This was a huge, big deal. I wore my suit. <laughs> you know, that's a big deal. And, 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 and I mean, really, really, I mean, they were so excited. And part of the deal, I mean, we talk about we're going to bring heaven to earth. This is what it's about. And this is where it starts is with the local church, okay? And, and the fun part is all I got to do is mention Rwanda to the people of Malawi. And they're like, oh, man, I hope we can be like Rwanda. I mean, it's kind of like Illinois and Indiana, you know? It's just kind of like, <laughs> oh, I, I wish we could be Indiana, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, dig- I digress, Okay. All my neighbors are moving. I don't know about you. This is, this is all you got to do is bring it up, right? And just bring it up. And they're like, oh, yeah, please let this be us. Let this be us. So the national language, I mean, most of the people we talk to can speak English. Very broken. You'll have a hard time even understanding them on the video. But the national language is Chichiwa. It's spoken by 16 to 20 million people and, uh, in Africa, not just in Malawi. And um, they don't have very many books you know, they can read in Chichiwa. Not very many at all. As a matter of fact, Purpose Driven Life, 180 languages, but hadn't been translated into Chichiwa yet. So I've already had my book, Life on Mission, translated into Chichiwa so we can get it out to the people of the churches that are there. I wanted to do that before I asked Pastor Rick because I wanted to have mine translated into Chichiwa before he did. That's just... It's kind of who I am. And he's given us permission, and we are now translating Purpose Driven Life into their language. Also, the Purpose Driven Church, which is kind of the background of all of these principles. And they're all being translated, and we're going to be giving them out. Okay, These are the things that we're involved in. And when I say 287 pastors, you have to understand, on the last day I interviewed one pastor who had 300 churches that he was the archbishop for in Malawi, as well as other places in Africa. So this, these aren't just 287 churches. This represented thousands of churches. And, th- and because we're in all three regions, this is going to travel throughout the entire country. Saddleback has sent 1,200 of their members over there, and 4,000 churches are working together in Rwanda. And that's our goal. We start with the churches, and then we're going to start bringing you guys over and helping them figure out how to do farming better and how to do business better and how to do health care better and all of those things. That's what's going to happen. And we're going to see all of those graphs go up in all of those categories as well. And pretty soon people are going to be calling up Pastor Rick going, hey, we see what's happening in Malawi. Could you send people over here to our country? And they already are. And we're taking it. Because guys, listen, if you give somebody a fish, you know this, you feed them for a day. If you teach them how to fish, you can feed them for a lifetime. 
But if you teach them how to fish and how to teach others how to fish so that they can teach others how to fish, you can save the world. That's what we're involved in. And I want you to feel very proud of your daring faith. Watch this. I'm excited. Some of our team's in here. I mean, it was an amazing trip, and I changed pants. Okay. I know you think I'm irreverent sometimes, but I can't preach about God in those pants. That's just uh, over the top for me. Last week, Todd did a great job on uh, why I believe the Bible, and today I'm supposed to convince you that God exists. Okay? Uh, you know, nothing like jet lag and the hardest topic in the world all in one weekend. It's perfect, right? And since I've been on planes more than I've slept in the last couple of weeks, let, 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 me, let me approach it this way. I think this topic is a lot like the safety briefing at the beginning of your flight, which none of us ever listen to anymore because in the U.S. the TSA has relaxed the, you know, the guidelines, and I can now listen to my headphones while they're doing the dumb announcement. But in Africa, no, it's, it's not that way anymore. You have to take off your headphones, and you can't read my candles, so I just got to watch them. I'm like, I'm watching this safety briefing, and I'm thinking, this is so unnecessary. Here's how to use your seatbelt. You click it together, Okay. Listen, if you've been in a car since 1965 at any moment, you know how to use your seatbelt. Oh, you click it together, and your oxygen mask is going to pop down from the ceiling panel, all right? In the first place, if that happens, that's the least of your problems. (laughs) And secondly, if everybody starts screaming and you feel a stiff breeze and your chest starts to tighten up and you can't figure out how to put that cup on your face, you should not be allowed to continue to your next destination. We don't need you propagating the planet. Forget about it. Okay? I just haven't seen the safety briefing in a long time. I'm just, I'm just thinking this is, this is so dumb. The only part of the briefing that makes any sense is about your children, right? Because that, that, they always say if the oxygen mask pop down, you got to put it on your face first before you put it on your child. And that's counterintuitive because we want to take care of our children, but they don't want us passing out before we get the chance to do it, which is great unless you're traveling with more than one child. And then you're going to have one child who is marred for life. Johnny, why are you such a screw-up? Well, you gave my brother the air mask first. What I'm saying is that I feel like this topic is like a safety briefing on the plane because most of you have believed in God all of your life. You, uh, you look up at the stars, you look up at the stars at night, and you go, of course. How could this have happened? There has to be a God. This is the only thing that makes any sense whatsoever. of Americans still say they believe in God. And for those of you in that category, you just want to put your headphones on and listen to the chain smokers for a while and not listen, not not deal with this. You got to, there's a God up there. Others of you may be listening to me, and for whatever reason, you don't think you believe in God. You don't think there is a God, and you're pretty sure there's nothing I can say that you haven't already heard before. And that's probably because you look at your life and ask why. I put everybody, I think everybody's in those two categories, and and we're back and forth between those two categories all the time. I look up, I see the stars, I I see creation, and I'm like, how could this, how how could this happen? There has to be a God. But I look at my life and think, if, if there is a God, why? If there's only one piece of truth that I could give you out of the Bible, it would uh, brilliantly be the first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God. If we get everything else 
falling into place after in the beginning God. The problem is the follow-up question should be, which God? N.T. Wright was a chaplain at a university for many years. He said, I was a college chaplain, and each year I used to see the first-year undergraduates individually for a few, few minutes just to welcome them to college, you know, and, and greet them. And they were happy to meet me, but some of them would have a little slight embarrassment and say, well, you won't be seeing much of me. See, I don't believe in God. He said, I, I just kind of over the years developed a stock response to that answer. I said, oh, that's interesting. Which God don't you believe in? This used to surprise them. They mostly, you know, regarded the word God as always meaning the same thing. They would stumble out a few phrases about a God they didn't believe in. This God who lived up in the sky, was looking down disapprovingly at the world, occasionally intervening to do miracles, sent bad people to hell, allowed good people to go to heaven. And again, I had this stock response for the common spy-in-the-sky theology of God. I said, well, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either. And that might be the problem. I think that's the problem. Your translation has been bad. It's always been difficult in, in, in other countries, even when they're speaking the same language with an accent or whatever, to understand. It was that way in Africa. You just gotta, and they're very soft-spoken in Malawi. You just kind of allowed to lean in and hear them. And we had a, a foreign exchange student in our house for uh, six months, Barbara. Barbara Sayakova from the Czech Republic. She lived with us when our Youngest daughter was a senior. It was a great experience for us. Um, but Sayakava. So she's explaining to my brother-in-law, Jack, one day how to say her name. He said, what's your last name? And she said, Sayakava. And he said, what, what was it? She said, Sayakava. And Jack said, Yakava. She said, no, Sayakava. He said, Yakava. It, was, it just kept going. It was just, you know, who's on first all over again? So we take Barbara to her very first uh, Major League Baseball game of her life, of course, to the cell because we didn't want to screw her up, and we took her to, to a White Sox game, and, and I noticed that there were some things that she was, you know, I'm trying to help her to understand because she knows nothing about baseball, and I'm trying to help her, and we get to, you know, we get to this point where they're doing the charge thing, and I noticed that she wasn't, she wasn't really participating. I'm like, hey, come on, let's go. What are you, what are you doing? And she said, what are they saying? I said, charge. She said, oh, I thought they were saying George. <laughs> da -na -na -da -na, George, right? I, got to, I, I have this feeling like the reason I'm a pastor is to help translate who this God is for you. Okay? I want to be a God translator. That, I think that's what God called me to do here. I've really been thinking about getting another tattoo, something that, that, that I could show sometime along the way. And this, is, this, is, this one keeps coming back. I want to go a little high art on you this time. I, I think the, the Michelangelo from the Sistine Chapel is perfect. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I put him in a Speedo because nobody needs to see that, okay? <laughs> but this, this picture... <laughs> this picture <laughs> I mean, we just got done with the Olympics. We're okay. <laughs> this picture represents to me that this is God and Adam, okay? This is the Sistine Chapel. I've not seen it live, but you all know this picture. It's God giving life to Adam. It's God and man coming together. And I think I want to just get a tattoo with those hands together and a little TH right in between those two fingers. Just this, this, is where, this is what God has done for me. This is where God wants me to be. He wants me to help translate who God is. Because I think that the reason that a lot of people don't believe in God is because he's been translated badly. Tell me which God you believe in. That's the question.
That's why the next series, you already heard, but the next series that we're doing is God never said that. I mean, there's so many, there's so many things going around that are attributed to God. Cleanliness is next to godliness, right? That's not in the Bible. Your mom made that up. It's not next to godliness. It might be great. It might be fine, but it's not, that's not in the Bible. We're going to talk about all those things because I want you to have the correct translation, okay? And again, we're going to be looking for you to take the DVD and go start a group in your home for those four or five weeks and do it together. It's going to be a very, very simple process. We've got all the DVD teaching. How many of you have been in a small group at Parkview at some point? Raise your hand, okay? Almost everybody's getting this. We want you to get back in one and maybe go back to the one that you were a part of or start your own. It just, just do your own. Invite your family and your friends and do it in your home together. We're going to talk about it on the weekend. Then we've got DVD teaching. You have a little group time. Spend some time in prayer together, whatever. It's going to be very simple. All you need to do is fill out the Next Steps card. Take it to the, to the booth on the way out. Take it to the Next Steps booth or uh, the small groups booth, either one. Or you could be high tech. And you'll start to notice a pattern here. 62953 is our number for you to text things to. You can text HOST to 62953, and we will get you the information, you know, without killing a tree. Text HOST. If you've got questions for Skeptics Wanted next week, text ASK to 62953. Very, very simple. Just, just keep that, all right? Let me give you a safety briefing, whether you want it or not, just a little bit about why I believe in God. Uh, I just want you to understand a couple of things that, that are important to me. You can't prove God by scientific method, but there are some scientific things that make sense to me. You can't prove a lot of things by scientific method. You can't prove love by scientific method. We know that it exists. You can't prove fear. You can't prove a lifelong devotion to the Chicago Cubs by scientific method. <laughs> but it is there, isn't it? And it looks like it's paying off for you guys. Way to go. This is awesome. I'm all in. I'm all in now. Okay? There, but there are some scientific evidences that do point to God. And, and I'm just going to give you one. It's, it's the, to me, the most important scientific one. And please understand, I'm not a scientist. I don't want to argue this. I, I don't want you to argue this. But if you ask me, why do you believe in God, I'm going to give you one scientific issue, okay? And it's basically just the law of cause and effect. It, it, it's, it's design and designer. What I see is what I know is that if I get to go to the Sistine Chapel and look up and see that painting, somebody painted it. If there's a note on my door, somebody left it. If Donald Trump's hair does that, somebody did it, okay? He doesn't get out of the shower and it doesn't look that way. When you look at things in the world, in the universe, how intricate life is, when you look at the neutrons or you look at the rings of Saturn up in the sky, for me, again, I look at the stars and I go, how? How could that have happened? And you know what? A lot of scientists are in this same boat. The amount of scientists who believe in God, I read an interesting statistic this week. They did a survey of scientists who believed in a personal God, not just a God, but a personal God that they prayed to in 1916, back when everybody believed in God. And then they did the same survey in 1996, and it hadn't hardly changed at all. You would think with the, the rise of knowledge and all the things that have gone on in science, plus the way a lot of the world has decided not to believe in God anymore, that that would go the other way. But that's not what happens. Francis Collins is the uh, co-discoverer of, uh, of DNA. He, he was on the Human Genome Project that discovered DNA back in about 2000. 
one of the most important, I mean, He's got to be a pretty brilliant scientist if he figured out how to map DNA, right? So you would think that that guy would look at all of this stuff and go, well, that's crazy, man. There couldn't be a God because I've got it all figured out. We map DNA. Well, here's what he said. Interesting book, The Language of God. Quite the contrary. For me, the experience of sequencing the human genome and uncovering the most remarkable of all texts was both a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion of worship. You see, there's a lot of stuff that just is hard to explain by accident. The earth is a perfect size to sustain life. We have a very specific gravitational pull, which holds in the nitrogen and oxygen at the right balance up until about 50 miles over the earth where our atmosphere ends. And that's why the little mask is going to pop out if you're up high and the plane depressurizes. We understand that. If the earth was smaller, the atmosphere would be impossible to live in, like Mercury. If, if it was bigger, like Jupiter, it would be impossible to live in. You watch the Martian, right? Yeah, I mean, that's legitimate. We're, we're not going to live there unless we've got a bubble or unless we've got a suit on. It's not going to work. And the earth is located at a perfect distance from the sun, give or take, Right? For those of us in Chicago, my wife and I saved up and went to Hawaii for our 20th uh, wedding anniversary. It was incredible. And, and when we left Hawaii, it was February, by the way. When we left Hawaii, it was 85 degrees. When we landed in Chicago, it was negative 15. 100 degrees and one plane ride, okay? That's a bad day to live in Chicago, but it's still livable. You see, the, the problem is when it comes to the possibility of God Paul says it this way. What may be known about God is plain. It's plain to them. Is God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. All of those things. So people are without excuse. But they, although they knew God, they neither glorified God or gave thanks to him, and their thinking hearts became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools. It just depends on what you want to believe. But what happens to me is when I see specified complexity, and when, when I can tell that something is that complex, that it's specifically complex, it leads me to believe that it was designed to be that way. And if something was designed to be that way, that leads me to believe that there was a designer. Example, here is Elephant Rock off the coast of Iceland, right? That's pretty crazy, isn't it? I mean, you look at that and you're like, man, it almost looked like somebody carved that, but you know also that could have just been an accident. I mean, you know, sometimes clouds look like bunnies, right? Now, here's the next slide. What does this next one tell you? Um, that was not an accident, right? Yeah, that couldn't have possibly been an accident. Nice rock formation, but there's specified complexity, which leads me to believe that somebody designed that, which leads me to believe that there was a designer, and that's the scientific thing for me that I keep coming back to. Scientists tell us that there are 150 different physical or chemical constants that have to happen for life to exist. 
I mean, the odds of, of life just popping up are so astronomical. Here's an example of one of them. The ratio of electromagnetic force to gravitational force, okay? You don't understand it. I don't understand it. It doesn't matter. The odds of one of those things, the odds of that happening in, in, the, in regards to life being created are one, according to scientists, the odds are one in 10 to the 40th power. Now, if you don't remember it, you're like, one in 10, I'd bet on that horse. No, one in 10 to the 40th power. If you don't remember math, that's like, there's no, po- I mean, that, that's so, here's how Hugh Ross, a scientist, explained it. He said, here's one in 10 to the 40th power. If you took dimes, took a bucket of dimes and you spread it out over the entire face of the United States of America, an entire layer of dimes, and then you put another layer of dimes and another layer of dimes and more and more and more, until it reached the moon, which is 238,000 miles up, and then you did that one billion more times. And you take one dime and you color it with a permanent marker and you throw it in there and you mix up the whole thing and you give somebody a blindfold and say, pick the right dime. That's one in 10 to the 40th power. It seems pretty hard for me to believe that that happened by chance. So you can't prove it. You're not going to. Just understand that the next time you press the button on your garage remote and expect the door to go up, that you know you believe in things that you cannot see. Next time you make a call with your cell phone, next time you see your, your wife or your husband or your kid or somebody that you love very much and you feel an emotion, know that that can't be measured, it can't be seen, it can't be heard, it can't be touched, it can't be tasted, it can't be felt, but you know that it's real. And you've got to remind yourself, every day we live by faith in things that we cannot see. And that's what faith is. It's being certain of things we do not see. Specified complexity to me is an important thing. I mean, when I look at the stars, I say, how? Okay, that's important for me. Not a big deal to my faith because I have that faith already. It is to other people. And if you've got questions about any of that stuff, again, we're going to do this next week. Text ASK to 62953. Pastor Todd's going to be back. Pastor Bill's going to join me on stage. And we're just going to fire it out. And we're just going to answer all your questions. I mean, not like questions about, you know, all those crazy other questions. I want to talk about skepticism and doubt. And we're going to talk about those. And I can't guarantee you it'll be the you know, most inspirational service you've ever been to. But we're going to have a lot of fun. I guarantee you that. So you don't want to miss next week. The important other thing to me, however, uh, uh, because I'm not a scientist, the other thing is there's philosophical evidence for God. I'm not a philosopher either. But, but let me give you some philosophical evidence for God. It's, it's very simple for me. It's... The reason that a group of us just got back from Africa. Most of the team were people who gave up, volunteered their time, and spent a considerable amount of money. It's not cheap to get a plane ticket to Africa. So that they could be crammed into a plane. It was 39 hours from the time we left the motel to the time I got to my house. Okay. That wasn't all on the plane, but that's... It's, nobody wants to do that. Okay, Why, 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 why would... Uh, it's my job, okay? Why would volunteers do that? Why would they do that to go help people that they've never met? And this is why. This is a philosophical reason that points me to God. Inside each and every one of us, we have a passion for things to be put right with the world. It's a dream. It's, it's a dream for justice. They call it moral law. And it's not about religion. 
I mean, why would Madonna or Brad Jelena or Bill and Melinda Gates or Oprah feel like they need to go to Africa and help people? Why do they do that? How does that fit into survival of the fittest? It's inside of me, I believe, because God put it there. Every human being on, on all continents knows they all have the same wiring, the same sense of justice. Obviously, there are evil people, and obviously, I am evil, but there is something inside of me that says, this is right and this is wrong, and I need to help other people with, with the things that can make their life right. The Bible says it this way, God's law is not something alien. There is something deep inside of us that echoes God's yes or no. It echoes God's right and wrong. But it's like a dream we can't get back to, so we want the world to be better. Every time you know, we hear of a, a genocide in Rwanda, we see what happened later on, or we see one of these horrible things that are going on in the world, we're all sad about it. And we all want it to stop, and we all want it to help. Francis Collins, again, the guy who discovered DNA. Selfless altruism, remember he's a scientist, big words. Helping other people, okay presents a major challenge for people who don't believe in God and believe that we evolved. It is, quite frankly, a scandal to reductionist reasoning. It cannot be accounted for by the drive of individual selfish genes to perpetuate themselves. If that's what we're designed for, then something's not making sense. Only humans have this. You understand that, right? Your dog does not have a sense of justice. Your cat has the opposite of a sense of justice. No moral code at all. Am I right or am I right? Yeah, I don't know how to say this, but you don't have a hamster anymore. That's, that's what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> Animals don't have this code inside of them. We do. We want to put, we want to make the world better. And that's a philosophical reason that points me to God. The second side of that philosophical reason is why do we have a hunger for spiritual connection anyway? Why is it that I can go to any culture in any place in the world and find them trying to worship some form of God? We are spiritual creatures. And why is it that in this, in this world we live in the 21st century with all the education and all the things that we have, why is there this big resurgence back to the things that are spiritual? Well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Well, what does that mean? Why? I mean, we've got some weird ways of doing it, but where does that hunger come from? What's going on inside of us? C.S. Lewis said, creatures are not born, they're not born with any desire unless a, desire unless a satisfaction for that desire exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. So I find in myself a desire, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's really good. Donald Miller talked about this in his book, Blue Like Jazz. He talked about uh, sharing this with an atheist friend. And the atheist friend was like, I just don't get you Christians and this hunger you have for connecting with something spiritual. And Miller said, well, I, I had just watched this March with the Penguins special on TV about, you know, the penguins that, that go away and come back at just the right moment. He said, he said I explained it this way. He said, I watched this program on TV about how these penguins get together and they have eggs and then the moms leave and go hundreds of miles away to find food and bring it back and they always come back at just the right time. And I don't know really, it's just that I identified with them. I know it sounds crazy, but as I watched this, I felt like I was one of those penguins. 
They have this radar inside of them that told them when to go and where to go, and none of it made any sense, but it always works out, and they show up at the very day their babies are born, and that radar always turns out to be right. And my friend, I feel like I have a radar inside of me that says I should believe in God and believe in Jesus. And somehow that penguin radar leads them perfectly well, so maybe it isn't so foolish that I follow the radar that is inside of me. You'd go crazy trying to explain penguins. It's best just to watch them and be entertained. I don't think you can explain how Christian faith works either. It's a mystery. It cannot be explained, and yet it is beautiful and it is true. It is something you feel, and it comes from your soul. I believe that everybody on the planet has that, and how could that be there unless there was something that, it was, that was planted inside of us? Why would people give up their time to go to Africa? Why would someone lay their life down? Why, why, why would our first responders decide to sign up for a job where they might lay their life down to save somebody's burning house or to step in, in front of a bad situation and save somebody? Where does that come from? Where do those things happen? That's my philosophical side of why I think there's a God-shaped hole inside of all of us. And listen, it's okay if you have doubts. We all have doubts. That's what we're doing with the intro of these sermons. We're showing you our staff members and some of their doubts. Paul Tillich said, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It's just an element of faith. All I'm asking you to do is to keep yourself open. Just a little bit. I met a guy in the health club day before yesterday. He came up and said, hey, you don't know me. I don't go to your church, but I've got some friends that do. And he, he said, would you pray for my dad? He said, I, I don't know, you know where my faith necessarily is. I, I, don't, you know, I don't know all those things about, about where God is. I don't know if I believe all that stuff. But would you pray for me? And I just, I, I just hugged him, man. I was like, yes, I will. Because what that tells me is the door is this far open, and that's all God needs. You may not even feel like praying. You may just say, you know, I'm just, just going to cover my bases in case you're there, God. I, I, if, if, if it's just in case the door is open, just don't shut the door on God. A lot of people just shut the door. Carl Sagan, great scientist, asked his Christian friend who was a scientist one day, Joan Brown Campbell, he said, why do you believe in God? You're so smart. Why do you believe in God? And her comeback was, Carl, you're so smart. Why don't you believe in God? Because either position is true. I mean, she knew that Carl Sagan believed in black holes, and nobody has ever seen a black hole, except for that one that's in your dryer that eats the socks, right? We've never seen it. <laughs> Scientists believe in it. Why do we believe in black holes? Because we see the evidence around them. Why do I believe in God? Because I see the evidence around us. The problem is Carl Sagan never changed. His faith never changed whatsoever. He did not cry out to God on his deathbed. He did not tell his wife, I'm going to see you later. He just died. And when somebody asked his wife later, did he ever want to believe? She said, no, he never wanted to believe. He wanted to know. And that's just never going to happen. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, even just a little, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I know we're skeptical. I get it. I, I, I am too sometimes. We're all, I think, afraid that we're going to get to the end and 
Toto's going to run around behind the stage and pull down the curtain, and we're going to meet the wizard who can't even fly a hot air balloon for crying out loud, right? We're all worried about having this disheartening thing happen at the end. And I've been thinking about it. I mean, that could happen. So I've been thinking about it. You know, maybe this is all, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm leading you down the wrong path. But what if even, even though I don't believe that for a minute, what if it's true? What if we get to the end and there is no God? What if you could, you could meet me, you know, one second after I die and start to become worm food and it's all over and there's nothing else after this life and ask me, well, ha-ha, you were wrong. I would say, I don't care. I would tell you that my life has been better anyway. The life that I have lived here has been better anyway. I've been married to the same woman for 32 years. I'm not sure without God, without my faith and her faith in God, that we would have made it for 32 years. I see people who, who don't believe in God, don't, don't live for God, and they go out and live their life. I mean, watch TMZ. Go look at the headlines, right? I mean, did those people that seem to have it all, that don't really care about God, that seem to have it all, do they, they seem happy? Because it doesn't look to me like they seem happy. We, we, we worship a God that we could not see, and it's made our lives better, and it's made our children's lives better, and it's making African lives better, and, it, and it's doing all of those things. So if I got to the end and there was no God, I would say, no big deal. I'm glad I lived the life that I did. I wouldn't have changed anything. But if you get to the end of your life, and you don't believe in God and all this stuff is true and God sent his only son to die on the cross to pay for your sins and you never accepted it, that's a different story. Listen, God is trying. He's trying to reach out. Kids are going to, the young people, student band is going to cover this song. They're going to sing this song from the script. I don't know what, the script's a secular band and it, it's a phenomenal song. I don't know what they were saying, but we know what, how we're using it. I'm sending out flares. I'm sending out flares. Couldn't you see the flares? Couldn't you see the signs? Look at the evidence all around you, the writer of Hebrews says. It's all around you. And I'm truly sorry if you are a person who looks at your life and says, why? I mean, we're all there from time to time, and I could try to explain it, but I can't prove anything to you. I'm just asking you to look for the flares. So let me, uh, let me finish this quote from N.T. Wright because I, I, I gave it at the beginning. He's the chaplain. People would come and say, I don't know if I believe in God. He would say, which God? And they would tell him, and he'd say, I don't believe in that God either. He said, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either, that one that's been translated to you poorly. At this point, the undergraduate would look startled, and I would say, no, I believe in the God I see revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. See, you could try to figure all this stuff out. You could try to learn the whole Bible and figure everything out and try to understand science and philosophy and all these different things along the way. But it's really pretty simple because Jesus came down and he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when I see Jesus serve and care for other people, I know that that's who God is and that's what God wants me to do. So we're going to go serve and care for other people. When I see Jesus loving his heavenly father. I'm going to love my heavenly father. When Jesus tells me to love my neighbor as myself, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. When he tells me to forgive my enemies, I'm going to, that's who God is. You don't need to understand. I don't know where he came from. I don't, I don't understand how there could be a trinity. I don't understand all of those things. It doesn't matter. Look at Jesus. 
That's what we do now at communion time. We look at Jesus. We look at how I understand God is he loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that sense of justice that you and I feel for things to be right, that comes from God. And the only way for justice to be served for the sins that I have in my life is for somebody to pay for them. And he sent his son, and I've accepted him, and I'm going to commune with him now. And I invite you to join me. God, thank you for sending your son. We don't know how you could have loved us. I know you created us for this relationship, but after sin came into the world and we've blown it so much, I I really don't understand how you could love us so much that you would send your one and only son to be a sacrifice for the, to be a payment for the sins so that my debt could be freed. I, I know because of justice it had to happen, but because of your grace, It's happened because of nothing that I did, just because of your love. Lord, if there are people here who need to have that experience with you right now and say say to you, God, I just want to leave the door open a little bit. I don't know if you're there, but I just want to toss a a little prayer up your way. I know that you are sending out flares. I know that, that they can smell the smoke. Just let that be the beginning of some spark of a relationship with you inside of them. And for those that maybe are ready to cross that line in in some way with you, Jesus, right now to say, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. I want to be a person who lives like you. This communion is the perfect moment for them to tell you, I accept your gift of salvation. Be with all of us as we do this now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We'll pass the trace. There's bread in the bottom cup and juice in the top cup, all in one hole in that tray. Just grab them both and, and, and hold them. Just pick them up and hold them for a moment, and we'll all commune together in unison. You don't have to be from Parkview either. If you're a believer, whatever flavor you come from, going to be like Africa. We're all coming together here. That's how it's going to work. We welcome you to do this.